Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history and the 2023 winner of an award of merit for excellence from the Connecticut League of History Organizations. Brought to you by Connecticut Explored, Connecticut's premier history magazine. I'm Mary Donahue. It's almost the end of 2023. Please use your power of giving to help us continue to offer the podcast at no charge to our listeners, students, teachers, and Connecticut history fans around the country. Podcast episodes were downloaded over 29,000 times this year. Could you make a $5 or $10 monthly donation? To make your monthly or one-time donation, go to ctexplore.org and look for the Grading the Nutmeg link under the Donation tab. Did you ever think that the universe was trying to tell you something? I just finished reading Anderson Cooper's book on the Vanderbilt family. In it, he describes family patriarch Commodore Vanderbilt's interest in spiritualism and clairvoyance. Cooper writes, quote, Evidence suggests that the Commodore had begun attending seances as early as 1864, but given the mainstreaming of spiritualist practices in the 1860s and 70s, this was not as unusual as it may sound. The period immediately after the Civil War had seen a dramatic rise in the spiritualism movement and other alternative modes of healing and perception, driven largely by the staggering loss of life experienced during the Civil War, unquote. If that wasn't enough of a hint, the latest Agatha Christie film on Hulu, The Haunting in Venice, revolves around seances. And the New York Times recently covered Lilydale, a village in upstate New York connected with the spiritualist movement today. We explored heiress Theodate Pope Riddle's obsession with spiritualism in our Grading the Nutmeg episode 109. But what did Hartford's most famous resident of the Gilded Age, Mark Twain, think about it? And what about the ghost seen in the Twain house? Whether you believe in the afterlife, don't believe in it at all, or just want to come to your own conclusions, this is the episode for you. My guests today are Mallory Howard, Assistant Curator at the Mark Twain House and Museum, and Dr. Jason Scapatici, Historian and Assistant Dean of Affairs at Connecticut State Community College Capital in Hartford. And if you need more ghostly insight after listening to this episode, the Mark Twain House is sponsoring a book talk on December 14th at 7.30 p.m. with television's Ghost Hunters, Adam Berry and Steve Gonzalez, in conversation discussing their debut books. Tickets are available on the museum's website at marktwainhouse.org. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Such an interesting topic. You know, Mallory, I think everybody's heard of Mark Twain, but could you tell us a little bit about his life here in Hartford and the magnificent house he built on Farmington Avenue? Yes, so Mark Twain, also known as Samuel Langhorn Clemens, a lot of people are surprised that he lived in Hartford, but he did live here for the longest period of his life. So he lived in Hartford for 20 years and in the house for 17. And most people, when they think of Mark Twain, they picture him living in Missouri, out out west, down south, but he was here the longest. It was the happiest, the most productive years of his life. And he first visited the city in 1868 while putting together really his first travel book, Innocence Abroad, which ends up being the best-selling book during his lifetime. And he falls in love with Hartford, calls it one of the most beautiful cities he's ever seen. 
And so after he gets married to his wife, Olivia, or Livy, they decide to put down roots here. And they end up moving into a very prosperous, progressive neighborhood called Nook Farm. So their neighbors were Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Charles Dudley Warner, who Twain later co-writes Gilded Age with. And this is where he decides to start his life. It's a publishing hub. Uh, it's an up-and-coming, wealthy city at the time. So this is a perfect place for him to put down roots. And tell me a little bit about the house. Because a house is always consistently on the top ten. You've got to see it before you die. House museums in the country. But yeah. tell us a little bit about the design. Yeah, so the house is really an architectural masterpiece. It's 11,500 square feet. has three floors, 25 rooms. And... An old Twain biographer, Justin Kaplan, described it as a combination steamboat and cuckoo clock, which I think is a pretty good description. And Twain loved when people gossiped about the house, even back then. So it's very catching. It's incredible looking. The interiors are all done by Lewis Comfort Tiffany, who later gets more well-known for stained glass in his company with Candace Wheeler, who is an interior designer called Associated Artists. So it's all hand stenciling on the first floor, and it's really a gorgeous piece of art inside and outside. I think the filmmaker Ken Burns said that he felt that Twain was still there when he went in the house. He just felt like it was so evocative. But today we want to talk a little bit about Twain's feelings about you know, religion and spiritualism, and then we'll tell some ghost stories So I know spiritualism, which was huge in the 19th century, is a religion that formed around the conviction that human souls continue living after physical death. It was such a popular movement. What did Mark Twain think about that? I think that he, along with a lot of other things throughout his life, kind of flip-flopped about it. I think that there are times he really wanted to believe. We know he suffered a lot of tragedy throughout his life and loss. And so there are moments where you can see he really wants to to believe that it is something that is real. But there are other moments where he thinks it's fraudulent and people are taking advantage of others. Um, Earlier in his career, he works at a newspaper out in uh, San Francisco where his job is to attend seances and try to figure out if they're a fraud or not. So this is something that's really a part of his life for a very long time. And like I said, he it kind of ebbs and flows as far as if he's leaning towards believing or if he's not. So it's really interesting to study how he feels about spiritualism r- throughout his entire life. Yeah, and you know, Mary, I brought, this is one of my favorite quotes from talking about him and spiritualism. So when he was out in San Francisco, and he writes these articles, right, about uh, attending these seances. Um, one of them, it's run by a famous spiritualist at the time. Her name was Ada Foy. And he writes about going to this. He writes uh, whole articles. But here's a little uh, clip that I just think is too funny to not share. So he writes, There was an audience of about 400 ladies and gentlemen present, and plenty of newspaper people. I saw a good-looking, earnest-faced, pale, red-haired, neatly-dressed young woman standing on a little stage behind a small deal table with slender legs and no drawers. The table, understand me. I am writing in a hurry, but do not desire to confound my description of the table with my description of the lady. The lady was Mrs. Foy. And then he goes on to describe, like, you know, how he, he doesn't know how she's doing this. She, what he attended there was a pellet reading. Yes. Um, and a pellet reading was where, like, the... 
audience, they could write down the name of a deceased loved one on a piece of paper, and they rolled it into a ball and put it in a bowl. And then the the spiritualist would would pull out one of those pellets, um, would like reach in, and like when there was a knock, would grab whatever piece of paper her hand was on, and then would pull it out and hand it to Mark Twain, would hand it to him. He would hold it, unroll it, and then she would supposedly write down the name uh, on a separate piece of paper and hand it to him. And he would verify that the names match. And he writes in the article that they do, right? By and large, and, and she answers these questions correctly, and he's mesmerized about how is she doing this? Ooh, I want to know how she did that. <laughs> so, yeah, so the medium is a person who has that ability to communicate with the other world. And not everybody, obviously, has that in the spiritual practice. Now, did Twain ever try to contact anyone? He did. We know that he tried to contact Henry Clemens, who was his brother, who died in a horrible steamboat explosion, of which Twain felt a lot of guilt for throughout Mm -hmm. his entire life. And we know he also tried to contact Susie, his oldest daughter, who died of spinal meningitis in the Hartford house. So that's a great example of him trying throughout his life to really want to believe that there are people that can communicate with his loved ones. And I I think there's a lot of interest in this. We now kind of lump it in with sort of the occult, Mm -hmm. but I think there's a lot of, you know, sort of religiosity around it. And who are some of the other people maybe in Nook Farm that took on parts of that occult practice? <laughs> I was going to say, um, well, certainly Harriet Beecher Stowe, right? And she actually published articles uh, where she had a conversation with, was it Charlotte Bronte, Mallory, through a medium, I think, right? And published articles about having these conversations or something with a Charlotte Bronte. I thought it was her, but I could be wrong. Well, I know Isabella Beecher Hooker mm. kept a ghost book. Right. Oh, and she would write down dead people that she communicated with through this medium and they were all, oh, not all, but a lot of them were famous. So George Washington, probably the Bronte sisters as well. Um, and so she'd keep track of, of these people that she was communicating with. And what's really interesting is Isabella was also a part of the suffrage women's suffrage movement at the time. And they sometimes would use spiritualism to their advantage. And so they would invite men sometimes to these gatherings and they would connect with dead, respected statesmen, like a George Washington oh. or a Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> and they would come through and tell the men, you need to support women's suffrage. Mm. You need to get behind this movement <laughs> and support your wives and the women in your life. So they, they kind of used it to their advantage that way, too. And so Isabella was also known to host parties. There was one incident where she was told via a medium that she was going to become ruler of the universe or president of the world. And so she decided to have a party as Mm -hmm. one does and had some mediums upstairs waiting for the stroke of midnight. And we know the Clemenses attended this party and of course midnight comes along and And fortunately for her, she does not become (laughs) ruler of the universe. But this is something that's rampant in Nook Farm because of Isabella Calvin Stowe, Harry Peter Stowe's husband, believed that he could see ghosts. And, you know, he was a respected theologian and biblical scholar. And yet he claimed ever since he was young that he would be able to see ghosts and apparitions and Mm -hmm. things of that nature. So, you know, it's still part of the neighborhood they're living in as well. So I think part of the way that spiritualism comes forward at different times over the centuries is when people have had huge losses 
So I clearly, after the Civil War in the what's now called the Gilded Age, which I think Mark Twain coined, but um, after the Civil War, you know, I think of all those grief-stricken parents and wives that were just desperate to feel like they could still communicate with their loved one. And then I know after World War I, it had a big resurgence, too. The same thing where you've lost so many people in this horrible World War. And I, I can really relate to that. I can think about, even though I'm a skeptic, I can think, gee, um, wouldn't, wouldn't that be wonderful if you still could communicate with this loved one? So Twain also seems to be a little bit of a skeptic about religion, too. Yeah, it's really interesting because some people will say, well, he's an atheist. And that's not the case. He does bring up God. He did attend church, though not regularly. But I think it's one of those things where, once again, it's a struggle that he really deals with throughout his entire life of not knowing quite what to believe, having moments of wanting to believe in a higher power, having moments of not believing. So I think it's something that he never really fully comes to terms with. His best friend was also... A minister. Right. Right? Best friend is Reverend Joseph Twitchell of Asylum Hill Congregational. So obviously he's involved in religion yes. in, in other ways too in his life. He's going to hear about it from his best friend, right? But I think that's very true is that like spiritualism, he wants to believe, but he, you know, there's, the evidence is not always there, right? I think so. And, you know, I was, I rewatched the wonderful Ken Burns documentary on, on Twain And he really went out of his way to convince his future father-in-law that he was going to reform all his bad ways so he could marry Olivia, who was an upstanding Christian woman. And so his smoking and gambling and whatever else, um, drinking and everything. So I I would assume that as part of trying to reform so that he could marry the woman he loves, I'm sure he had to, you know, he did go to church and try to support that in order to really be the, the a good husband for her, which I think he probably was because he certainly loved her. But um, what other kinds of things demonstrate his interests? I know some of his stories have ghosts in them too. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, right, he writes uh, the mysterious strangers. One of my now that's not necessarily a ghost, right? Is it is the devil? Right, who comes to this oh, that town, could qualify. which could, qual- <laughs> could qualify, right? Um, but yeah, certainly. Oh, he writes that really cool short story about the the graveyard, right? Where the, the they they get up and move their headstones or something, right? Yes. They want to move their location, and I always thought that was really a funny one. Tom Sawyer pretends to be a poltergeist in the book, if I yes. recall. It's been a while since I read that one, right? Mm-hmm. A and Kearney Street ghost story. Oh yeah, the Kearney Street ghost story. Yeah. So yeah, there's sort of that element in his writings of ghosts and supernatural elements and things like that. And he also parodies um, Poe. Yes. With, um, he takes Poe's The Raven, and he, he writes a parody of The Raven, which is very funny and, and clearly very Mark Twain. Yes. Um, but yeah, he's definitely reading the Gothic literature of the time, if, he's, if he knows Poe, and he's definitely incorporating those things into his own creative um, enterprises. And not only that, he's using some of his experiences in his travel writing, so we know, for example, that he talks about the mail order medium, yeah. Life on the Mississippi, yes. mm-hmm. which he hates this guy, yeah. and he calls him Manchester. Yeah, right. It's actually James Vincent, Vincent Mansfield. Mansfield. <laughs> and he refers to him as Manchester, and he would basically charge you to 
write him questions and he would contact the other side and then mail you their answers. And he would sometimes <laughs> do it unprompted. He would just send yes. you answers and expect you to pay him $5. And so no, that's... That is a real racket. That's oh, a yeah. Real racket. So this is... He actually... I have a, that clip. He um, it's, it's in the Life on the Mississippi and he writes... Uh, let's see. I learned that a pilot whom I used to steer for has become a spiritualist and for more than 15 years has been receiving a letter every week from a deceased relative through a New York spiritualist medium named Manchester. Postage is graduated by distance. From the local post office in Paradise to New York, $5. From New York to St. Louis, three cents. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the mail order medium, he was famous for doing that, that you would, you would submit your questions and you'd put them in a sealed envelope. Then you'd put them in a bigger envelope with the $5 bill. And then he would open up that. Supposedly, he wouldn't open the envelope with the actual questions, but could still answer all the questions. But yeah, he would then send more letters from that deceased relative as well as a bill for an additional $5. He'd keep, once he had you, he would keep, keep uh, trying to get more out of you. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> we have an earlier podcast, which I'll put the number in the show notes, but an earlier podcast where we talked with the, our wonderful friend who's a curator at the Hillstead Museum about Theodate Pope Riddle, and she was a huge believer in spiritualism, and she actually spent what nowadays would be millions of dollars on trying to prove one way or the other that it was real. And even with that amount of money and investment, she was, of course, never able to prove that it was could truly exist. But she was in an organization called the Society for Psychical Research, and I think Twain might have been for a while too, right? He was, mm-hmm. yeah. He joined in the 1880s mm-hmm. when he was living in Hartford. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the circumstances of the death of his daughter in the house. So Olivia Susan Clemens, or Susie, was his oldest, and they he was really bad at making financial decisions and investments, and he invested in the page compositor, which really ends up being the final straw. And he loses hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's supposed to revolutionize printing. It never works properly. And so at this point, they really have to leave Hartford and the house because they can't afford it anymore. And he needs to make money back. And so they decide uh, they leave in 1891. And a few years later, in 1895 into 1896, he goes on a worldwide lecture tour, which takes him really across the globe. And he, he really doesn't like the lecture stage. So this is something he doesn't want to do, but really is necessary at this point. So he leaves with his wife, Olivia, his middle daughter, Clara, to start this journey. And eventually they plan on meeting up with Jean, his youngest, and Susie in England. And the two of them decided to stay back. They're visiting some family in Elmira, New York, where Olivia Olivia is from. And then they decide to come back to Hartford and visit some neighbors and friends in the Nook Farm neighborhood. And while they're doing that, they're getting ready to leave. They're leaving the next day to head to England to reunite with the rest of the family. And Susie gets sick. And so they decide to move her into her family home back in the Hartford house so she'd be more comfortable. They are renting it out at this point, hoping she'll make a recovery. And... Those that are with her send a telegram overseas to the Clemenses, and they say, you know, Susie's not well, but she's expected to recover. So, of course, Livy and Clara immediately get tickets to get on board another ship and 
make it home to be with her. And Sam remains behind. And Susie starts to deteriorate pretty quickly. And she's hallucinating. She's wandering around the house. She's feverish. She's looking out the window and singing songs like the trolley goes up the street for Mark Twain's daughter. And eventually her fever gets so bad she goes blind. They try to make her as comfortable as possible. Um, We're not sure which room she died in. They think either her parents' bedroom or uh, the mahogany guest suite on the first floor. Not quite sure which one. And she clutches a nightgown and her last words are mama. She thinks her mother's there. And sadly, she dies at age 24 of spinal meningitis. And they telegram, send another telegram overseas, and Sam receives it. And it says, Susie has been peacefully released today. And he, as you can imagine, is overcome with grief and guilt. And he also feels horribly for his wife and daughter, knowing that they're only halfway across the ocean and that when they arrive, they're going to be greeted with the news that Susie has died. Um, and this is, you know, that continuation of tragedy and grief. And it, he, it's really difficult for, for him to come to terms with this. And I think that really stayed with him his entire life. Yes. You know, his brother and his daughter, both. His son also, mm-hmm. uh, they, their firstborn oh, their child, son Langdon, Langdon right. died. And then just a few months before Sam himself died, he dies April 21st, 1910. His youngest daughter, Jean, dies on Christmas Eve of 1909. So he loses three of his four children and his wife. Mm-hmm. Boy. I'll be right back with my guests after this message. There are so many ways to celebrate the holidays with Connecticut Explored. Gift a loved one a CT Explored subscription. Take a trip to our partner organizations and look for our magazines in their gift shops. Get cozy in your favorite warm reading spot with our latest issue. Or treat yourself to a present with an unbeatable deal. This holiday season, when you visit our website and use code HOLIDAY23 on a one or two year magazine subscription, you'll receive two bonus issues. That's six issues for the price of four or 10 for the price of eight. That's ctexplore.org slash subscribe, promo code HOLIDAY23. Happy holidays and happy reading from CT Explored. Interested in reaching an audience of culturally active, lifelong learners? We know just the place. Advertise with Grading the Nutmeg, the award-winning podcast of Connecticut history. Grading the Nutmeg offers a unique platform to showcase your brand to a dedicated and engaged audience of history and culture enthusiasts. It's also budget-friendly. To become a Grading the Nutmeg sponsor, email our ad manager at admanager at ctexplore.org and start advertising with Grading the Nutmeg. I know that uh, whether, whether you're a believer or not, the Mark Twain House has welcomed in many ghost hunters and has some pretty good ghost stories. Could you tell us a little bit about the ghost hunters that have visited the house? Yeah, so we have had ghost hunters come three times over the years. Two were just the regular ghost hunter show, and then we had Ghost Hunters Academy, which was their competition show. And we have had really crazy results each time. I mean, each episode that airs, they have pretty good evidence, I think, that something is going on. And so they basically come in and they pair off and they they don't... Some ghost investigators will use mediums or psychics as part of their investigation teams. Ghost hunters don't. They're really relying on technology and their own experiences to determine if something is 
you know, ghostly or spiritual versus something that can be explained. So we've had them, you know, spread out steadily over the years and they've given us, like I said, some pretty good mm, yeah. sights and sounds that they've encountered. Yeah. And so what kind of technology do they use? So they use things like uh, EMF detectors, which change the, I don't know what you'd call it, electro- electromagnetic yeah, like the field, the yeah. frequency. So they believe that if a ghost <clears throat> is near you, that it's changing that. We had one episode where they used flashlights, just flashlights that you would twist to turn on and off. And they used three different ones. And they were trying to communicate with George Griffin, the family's butler. And in the clip, you can actually see the different flashlights responding based on the questions that are being asked. And then they also have video cameras set up, audio recorders, things like that. So, Where are some of the places in the house that people have felt things or are just sort of spooky or evocative? Well, I know I've had experiences on the second floor. I know a number of people have had experiences on the second floor of seeing like this figure, this white figure. Um, And guests have had that experience too. And my experience came my first year working at the the house. I remember I was giving a tour and I was standing in the guest, uh, in the master bedroom talking to my group. And I looked out the door uh, into like the second floor hallway and I could see somebody walking down the hall. And I remember thinking, you know, what's, did somebody get away from my tour is what I thought initially. And then I was like, no. And I realized, wait, this is not a person. It, it like, I was dumbfounded because I would say, Mary, that I, I'm a skeptic. You know, I, I had been a skeptic before that. And then I had that very unusual experience in the house. Uh, and that was just my first one. There have been other ones since then. And I know, Mallory, you've had some unusual experiences too. Yes, mine was on the first floor, but I saw basically what Jason saw, which was a woman in a Mm -hmm. white nightgown and I was giving a tour in the drawing room and I looked up and I was talking about Susie actually and I saw same thing so a head go by and I thought oh it's either a person who Mm -hmm. got loose on a tour or a colleague so I got to keep my eye on them to make sure there's not some person just going through the house so I could I was following their movement going by doors and and then I finally turned to confront them and it's this apparition of a woman rushing through the dining room. And I completely froze mm-hmm. to the point where people had to come up to me on the tour and say, are you okay? And kind of touch my arm. And of course, I did not want to admit, oh, I just saw a ghost. <laughs> right, right. So I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I zoned out for a minute. But my body had such a reaction. Like I was shaking. My heart was pounding. I... I couldn't believe what I saw. And so I was able to recover and I made it through the rest of the tour. And at this point, I didn't know that anyone else at the museum had experiences. So I really, and I was a skeptic as well. I thought it had to be a trick of the light. It had to be my imagination. But I know based on what I saw and how I physically reacted that it was something more than that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, and, and it makes sense with Susie, you know, being feverish during her illness, wandering around different parts of the house and that's why things are seen all over, heard all over. Every single floor, we have stories of experiences that someone has had. So his billiard room and writing room is on the third floor. Yes. So that room, apparently, people smell cigar smoke. Mm. Yes. How often have you heard that? Pretty often, yeah. several times. And we even had an incident where the smoke detectors went off in the middle of the night probably 2 a.m., something like that. 
and our security team got notified, police and fire get notified, and so they converge onto the house and they check the panel and it says it's the smoke detector from the billiard room. So everyone rushes upstairs into the billiard room and they throw the door open and there's nothing there, but everyone's remaining silent and they all start looking at each other. And then finally, I think it was one of the firefighters goes, I can smell smoke. Mm -hmm. And everyone else agreed that it had the stench of cigar smoke, but it was the middle of the night. Nothing's there. The alarms are going off. They could not figure out what had made that happen. And so they just, you know, left and we've had other people who don't even know about this story who have come up to us and been like, I, it's really a strong cigar stench mm. in the billiard room. Yeah. People on to- daytime tours, yep. some on the ghost tours. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very strange. I've had people ask me if we purposely, oh. like sent the room, <laughs> you know, like, 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 do you, do you like come up here and like smoke us? I'm like, yeah, the curator lets us come up here and smoke a cigar. Uh, but <laughs> And I, I rem- so one time I remember back when Mallory and I were still guides together, we were setting up the house for ghost tours, like, because yes. you have to go in and, um, like, you know, they put, like, we, you would put, like, lighted candles, battery-powered candles around and stuff like that. It was cool. Anyway, and I remember... And these are for these late night yeah. tours, yes. which you call the... Uh, the, the graveyard the, shift. The graveyard shift yeah. tours. Which just going to that house late at night would uh, would be creepy enough. It is, and it's but it's such a treat to see yeah. the house at that time, you know, because yeah. most yes. people don't get to see it then. But I'll, I'll never forget it because Mallory was like, "Oh, Jason, go get the stuff from the basement. I'm gonna start setting up the stuff up here on the first floor." So I'm like, "Okay." So the basement's creepy, Mary, like any basement. And so I I remember going down the stairs and like I'm gathering the stuff, and then from another part of the basement, which is very subdivided into different rooms, I heard a door slam. And it freaked me out. And I went running up the stairs to me. I left everything. And I remember running and bounding into the, the drawing room where Mallory's there. I was like, did you just go in the basement and slam a door? And she's like, no, but I heard that. That wasn't you? And I was like, no, is there someone in the house? And so we radioed. We, we, we radioed. We were like, security, are you in the house? We were in the house absolutely alone. Yeah. And you had heard it when yeah. you were setting up. And you thought it was me. And it was definitely not me. Scared the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Now, it's interesting that the museum decided to embrace this. I don't know if there's a standoffishness among, uh, you know, other prestigious house museums or not. But what kind of feedback have you gotten from both your colleagues and the public on sort of embracing this side of telling this story? Yeah, I think it's it's something that is definitely could be odds with with one another, with our organization. Some places believe that a house museum should be more reverent and should not do something like a ghost tour. We struggled with it as an institution for many years. Things and stories have happened for Mm -hmm. years, and it was kind of at one point, eh, it's not something we're going to talk about. It's not something we're going to advertise. But I think time evolved and we got new staff in and new changes and they thought, you know, this is something that I think needs to be explored a little bit further. And I think the thing that I find is really great about the Graveyard Shift Tours is of course you come in and we talk about our experiences and spooky things that happened and what ghost hunters found. But the meat of the tour is really talking about the history, is talking about the articles that Sam wrote when he was in San Francisco and talking about 
the Fox sisters Mm -hmm. who really started the spiritualism craze and talking about Nook Farm and Isabella Beecher Hooker. Right. And talking about the family tragedy with his brother Henry and with Susie's death. And so you're getting a lot of education about spiritualism and the Clemens family. And it's getting peppered in with entertainment as well as far as hearing some of these spooky things. But I think that's what, in my mind, really helps solidify and justify what we do is that there's always that element of educating. And I've had people who have gone on graveyard shift tours who come back and say, I have to come during during the day. Yeah, absolutely. I want to learn more about Mark Twain yep. and his family. I want to see the house in the daytime. And so this is an opportunity to grow our base and fans of Mark Twain and the Mark Twain House Museum. And some historic house museums don't want to do ghost tours, and that is completely fine. Mm-hmm. But we think that it's an opportunity to really bring people into our museum and our community. I th- and I think that's a really good point. And Mary, I'm so glad you asked the question because I remember when this all started, you know, certainly there were some guides at, at the house. I remember at the time that were like, oh, I don't know about this. And I remember talking to one who was like, well, don't you think this sort of degrades his legacy? And I was like, why? He didn't think it degraded anything about him during his life. I mean, he was interested, right? So he, he writes about it. So why, why do you not want to talk about this part of his interests? You know, it's true. And so I, I think that's so important. But like you said, it gets people through the door that maybe wouldn't have come through the door. And then they realize, oh, my God, I want to know more about this guy. Right. Uh, and that's great. That's the way it should be. Yeah, we, I, I've had, I have people over the years also asked, would Mark Twain have been okay with this? Mm. Would if he have been okay with people traipsing around his house at night looking for ghosts? And I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> he would have loved it. He would have loved people gossiping about it. If he could come back and, and mm-hmm. mess around with people, he probably does. I mean, <laughs> right. and, and like like Jason just said, it's something that he investigated himself right. during his lifetime is right. going and trying to figure out, can people talk to the dead? Do ghosts exist? Mm-hmm. Can I communicate with the other side? So we're doing something that he himself did. He did, exactly. So... Yeah, I, I, think he I absolutely it. think he would endorse it because, yes. first of all, his sense of humor is just outrageous. Right. Uh, you know, when you you and Tom Sawyer comes quote back to life uh, mm-hmm. after everybody's right. at his funeral, that's the kind of humor Twain has. Exactly, and he certainly would love to have people in his house. Yes. He, he installed the first telephone in Hartford just so people would know that he had the first telephone in Hartford. Yeah, so he, lo- he loved to claim all sorts of stuff like that. So I'm sure that he would just, I'm sure he would go with it. And I think a lot of his, both intellectual, his humor as well as his intellect, was targeting what he saw as hypocrisy, whether it's religion or spiritualism or anything, Mm -hmm. or politics or anything else. He really liked to skewer things that he thought were just phony or hypocritical. So... I think he would get a kick out of the fact that you've got ghost hunters at the house trying to figure out if there are ghosts mm-hmm. in the house. And I, I think he would endorse it. Now, I was lucky enough to get a copy of the book that you sent me, published by the Mark Twain House, called We Shall Have Them With Us Always, The Ghosts of the Mark Twain House, by our friend Steve Courtney. So that's available at the gift shop at the house. Yes. And that'll give you more stories to look at and more information about Twain's involvement in ghosts and spiritualism. 
Mallory, what have you got coming up at the Mark Twain House, and how can people get more information? So, speaking of ghost hunters, we actually have two of the ghost hunters from the television show that are coming to do an event with us on December 14th at 4.30. So we have Adam Barry and Steve Gonzalez from the show. So they're coming out with books about their experiences as ghost hunters and investigators. But of course, since they investigated the Twain House, they're going to be sharing their experiences doing that as well. So if you're interested in that, you can visit our website at www.marktwainhouse.org. Click on the events tab and you scroll down to December 14th and you can buy your tickets there. I think we need to be represented at this. So (laughs) I think our sound engineer and I are going to sign up for this. Um, And Jason, you lecture on Twain as you do, Mallory, as a curator from the house. And people could contact you for lecture information. We'll have your email in the show notes. Great. Thank you. So I know both of you, just uh, a quick aside, recently went down the Mississippi, were invited as lecturers on a riverboat cruise where they talked about Twain. What was that like? Oh, it is. It's one of the coolest things I've ever done. To see America that way, Mm -hmm. um, to be on the Mississippi River, you know, which is so important to the development of America and, of course, the development of Mark Twain. Yes. Um, So it's just a really rad experience. And, of course... If you've ever been on a cruise, um, there's lots of good food. Uh, and so that's always fun, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I had soft serve every night. Every night. Every night. <laughs> yes. But no, it, we, And we started the one that Jason and I, we did two separate trips, but the same path. Right. And so we start in St. Paul, Minnesota, mm-hmm. and we went all the way to New Orleans. So you visit really interesting, small American yes. towns that you would typically never put as your point of interest right. because they are such small little river towns, mm-hmm. but they're fascinating. They're full of history and interesting people. We stop stop in Hannibal, Missouri, where yep. Mark Twain was from, so that's always a really good time. But, yes, yeah, quite quite the adventure. We're sort of following in his yes. Oh, gosh. Steps. Anybody who's read, like I have, Life on the Mississippi, would I, I just think this would be a wonderful experience to see the entire Mississippi River. Yes. Yeah. So I want to thank both of you for you know sharing both your hard facts and your spooky stories <laughs> with us. We look forward to having you as guests in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for having us. Here. And we look forward to having you come check out our ghosts. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want more spiritualism and ghost stories, check out Grading the Nutmeg, Episode 109, Communicating with the Spirits, Theodate Pope Riddle. You can purchase author Steve Courtney's book, We Shall Have Them With Us Always, The Ghosts of the Mark Twain House, at the Mark Twain House Museum gift shop. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Thank you so much for your support. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.